Last time we were together in, in our Bible study revelation was uh, probably about a month ago, maybe a little bit more than that, and we were talking about the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, and uh, tonight we're going to look at a portion of scripture that is deliberately in contrast with what we studied about the mark of the beast. It, it is a deliberate contrast. Uh, in chapter 13, it describes the beast and his mark and the evil he will bring about. Chapter 14 offers the other side of the coin. Chapter 14 talks about the Lamb of God and his mark. Chapter 13, there is the false worship of the beast. Chapter 14 is the righteous uh, Lamb and his true worship. So I want you to look at your outlines. I hope that you've got one with you there. Look at what I wrote at the first, uh, just the introduction. I want to read that with you. One of the themes that links Revelation 14 through 16, so we're kind of starting a new section in the book of Revelation. Uh, one of the themes that links Revelation 14 through 16 together is expressed by the word voice, which is used 11 times uh, in those chapters. The events recorded in these chapters uh, in the events recorded in these chapters, God speaks to His people and to the lost world. There's this voice of God speaking, and He speaks to His people and to the lost world. Others also speak out in praise of the Lord or in warning to the world. And as the world moves into the last half of the tribulation, heaven is not silent. And so let's just start reading, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there was before me, there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, one hundred forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. And they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they were blameless." Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image uh, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. 
this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. So in this passage of Scripture that we read tonight in chapter 14, there are these various voices that we want to look at. The first one that you follow along in the outline, I want to talk to you first of all, first of all about the voice of the 144,000. We've met these good people before. They are 144,000 end-time Jewish missionaries. We've talked about that previously, so I'm not going to get into that, except to summarize that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and they are the special called servants of God. But just think of them in these terms, 144,000 end-time Jewish missionaries who have been saved. And he describes them for us in several different ways. First of all, they are sealed. And look what he says in verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. Now remember in chapter 13, there was the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand. Here, in contrast to that, uh, you have 144,000 who are sealed with the name of of God on their forehead. Now you'll remember from Revelation 7, if you want to write that, that down in the little column there, Revelation 7 says that that 144,000 Jews received a special seal on their forehead. The seal of God. And that seal of God was to protect them from the beast and to enable them to be a witness for God in the time of tribulation. Because of that marker seal, they'll be able to ignore the threats of the Antichrist. Because they have this mark or seal, they will, they will be able to stay faithful to Almighty God. They, they will, in other words, they will come through the great tribulation without losing their faith, without being harmed, without taking the mark of the beast. They will come through the great tribulation because they have this seal, if you will, the name of God on their forehead. Now, I want you to look at the Scripture and, and answer this for me. Notice the place where they are standing. Where are they standing in verse 1? Mount Zion. Now the question that everybody asks is, which one? Which Mount Zion is that? Is it the heavenly Mount Zion or is it the earthly, literal Mount Zion? It's debated by scholars, but uh, what, would you, what would be your best guess based on what you read in verse 3? Read verse 3 and tell me what, which you think it is. Heaven, yes, I believe it is. And the focus... In verse 1, and of course in verse 3, is, is on the presence and the protection of God. Look what, look what it says. Now, I looked before me, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, verse 3, and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There seems to be an emphasis here on the protection, the presence and the protection of the Lord. The Lord Jesus is standing with them on Mount Zion. 
Now that statement shouldn't surprise you. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It shouldn't surprise you that the Bible says in, in Hebrews 13, 5, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So even in those days of great tribulation, the Bible says these 144,000, though they have to go through the terrible tribulation, the Lord Jesus will be with them. Now, before we leave verse 1, would you notice what is written on their forehead? I've already mentioned it, but I want you to notice it. You might want to mark it in your notes or, or in your Bible. What is, what is written on their foreheads? Say it a little loud for me. Then I looked, verse 1, and there, was with the, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with him who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It's, it, it serves two purposes. It serves the purpose as a seal, marking them as gods. And it also serves as a reminder. A reminder that they belong to God. That's in sharp contrast to the mark of the beast, isn't it? A sharp contrast. In the mark of the beast... Uh, they, they do not belong to the Lord. They belong to the devil. And, and his goal is, is, is destruction. But the mark of the Lamb is protection. So they are sealed, these 144,000. But also I want you to notice something else. Uh, Dave, you're going to like this one. They, they're singing. It says in verse 2, these 144,000. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. Verse 3, and they sang, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And this is interesting. No one could, doesn't say no one else could sing the song. It says no one else could even learn the song. Look what it says. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I love the fact that Revelation is not just a book of sorrows. It is also a book of songs. Verse 2, I've told you before, well, let me say it to you again in case you, you didn't catch it, in case you weren't here. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make sure you understand, understand heaven is not going to be a quiet place. You know, I, I understand if you like your worship quiet, you want to come to church and it's a quiet place. I understand that, I get that. Some people do, some people don't. I, I get that. But I just don't want to disappoint you. I want to warn you ahead of time, when you get to heaven, it's not going to be a quiet place. You're not going to be floating on your cloud in quiet bliss. All right? Look how it's described in, in, in these verses, verse 2 and, two and 3. It is a place, the Bible describes it as a place of pure praise and celebration. I want you to think of that, those two phrases, pure praise and celebration. And look how it's described. Verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven and here's how he describes it. Like the roar of rushing waters. Has anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Okay, if you've been to Niagara Falls, you understand the roar of rushing waters. Especially if you get on that boat. I don't remember the name of it, but... Made of the Mist. You get on the Made of the Mist, and you put on these, these cheesy raincoats, and you go up towards the falls, and you get up real fairly close to the falls, and you can feel the water coming off the falls. And it's hard to talk to one another because of the roar 
of the waters. It's so loud, the roar of the waters. It's hard to even talk to one another. And John, when he wrote this under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, listen, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters. And then, if that's not enough, and he says, and like a loud peal of thunder. Have you ever had the thunder be so loud that it scared you? I mean, just a, just a loud boom. John said, you know, what, what I heard in heaven was kind of like that. Then he describes it this way. Now, this is the one that intrigues me. And, like, the sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. No, no, I can understand the first two, right? First two, it's going to be loud. The roar of the water, the, the, the boom of the thunder, it's going to be loud. Then he describes what he heard as, as a harpist playing their harps. I think John was saying, but it's not just going to be loud, it's going to be beautiful. Celebration, is, it's not just that they turn the speakers up really loud. But John was saying it, it was so beautiful, like the playing of harps. And, and, it's not just, and it's not just sound. And it's not just a voice. But it's music. Worship music. Look how he describes it again. Verse 2, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peal of thunder. Not just thunder, but the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. Have you ever heard anybody play the harp and they're really good at it? Boy, I, I, that is just one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. There was, um, when Lisa and I were in seminary, there was a guy, I cannot remember his name, but he... Who? Greg Buchanan? Yes. When we were in seminary, he came to our church. I'd never heard of him. I... And be, be honest with you, I was not a fan of harps. And when I saw that we were having a harpist that day, is that what they're called, a harpist? Somebody, when I saw that we had a harp on stage, it was like, okay. What time will this be over? But when he started playing that harp, I have never heard such beautiful music. In fact, I went from, okay, when will this be over, to standing in line to buying a cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. I didn't have CDs. I just had the cassette tape. But it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. John said, the sound that I heard in heaven, the, the worship that I heard in heaven was like that. It was beautiful. Now, I want you to see something else in verse 3. Why, why, were, they, why were they singing? I want you to try to figure that out. Read verse 3. Why were they singing? Say that again. They had been redeemed. They were singing because they had been redeemed. What does that mean?
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to follow that up. I would say it this way. They were singing because they couldn't help but sing. Their hearts were so full because of what God had done for them. They were redeemed. They were saved. They were delivered. And in this time of tribulation, these are the ones that were saved. These Jewish, Jewish men, 144,000 of them, they had a chance to receive Christ as their Savior. And when they got to that chance where, where they were now in the presence of God, they couldn't help but sing because they were not, listen, they were not damned, they were redeemed. Can I ask you a question? Have you been redeemed? If you have, you ought to have something you could sing about. Now, this is interesting. I want you to notice that these 144,000 will be singing an exclusive new song. It's new because of the experiences of the tribulation are unique to them. The experiences of the tribulation are still fresh in their minds. And it's exclusive because of the unique circumstances that, that God brought them through. That God brought them through, delivered them through something that nobody else had experienced. And so they're singing this song based on, watch this, they're singing this song based on what God had done for them. Did you know that heaven's not going to be the same for everybody? Here, here's what I mean by that. What God has in store for you may be different from what God has in store for me. What God has in store for me may be different than what God has in store for somebody else. We, we, well, here's what I mean. We're going to have different songs to sing because He's brought us through different experiences. We're going to have different rewards because we have... We have served the Lord differently over the years. Now, however heaven is for you, I don't want you to feel like, well, I'm afraid I'm going to get left out. I don't. I'm going to tell you something. If you get to heaven, brother, uh, you're not going to be left out. If you get to heaven, you're going to have something to celebrate. But heaven's not going to be the same for everybody. Uh, there will be those who have a song to sing that others don't sing, or, or they'll sing a different verse than you. Because God brought them through different experiences. Just like, just like right now, if I were to say, hey, let's, let's praise the Lord right now. Has anybody got a, oh, a testimony of how God brought you through something? Your testimony would be different from somebody over here. You'd still praise the Lord, right? Still praising the Lord, but praising the Lord for different reasons and from different perspectives. You see, I, I praise the Lord because I grew up in the home of James and Mildred Shorter. I praise the Lord because I, I, because I was born in church. I, I praise the Lord because I heard about Jesus at an early age. I praise the Lord because I was saved at 11, called to preach at 17. I praise the Lord because God had me on that path, and I just feel privileged to grow up in that home. I feel privileged to have that kind of godly heritage. I praise the Lord because of what He's given me the privilege to do. Maybe you praise the Lord differently. Maybe you'll praise the Lord because... Man, you were messed up, your family was messed up, but when you were 31, God radically changed your life. I'm no better than you, you're no better than me, but we've got different perspectives of God, don't we? 
We've got different reasons to praise Him. We've got, listen to this, we've got different songs to sing. But we all should have a song to sing. Amen? Just, just remember this. For, I, I need to go on, but just remember this. This was written about or during the, uh, about the time of, of tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation. Remember this. One day, all of our sorrows will be turned into songs. That's a beautiful thought. One day, all of our sorrows will be turned into songs. So we're talking about these 144,000, and John describes them different ways. And the third way he describes them is that they are separated. Verse 4, he says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, but for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. This is a, an unusual statement. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. Some say that this speaks of a symbolic virginity. That is, and I'm going to be real careful here. I know we've got some children in the, in the audience, but... Some say this is just symbolic, saying that these 144,000 did not take part in the false religion of the world. They, were not, uh, they did not commit spiritual idolatry. They stayed separate, and they were committed to the Lord. They did not commit spiritual idolatry. Some say that's what it's talking about. Another possibility is that this verse means that these 144,000 remained unmarried. They remained celibate. Uh, they were... Uh, Marriage was not on God's agenda for their life. Their, their time, their energy, their focus was totally wrapped up in serving the Lord. And in fact, it even says, says they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Maybe it's indicating that these folks were not married. They were not tied down to a family. They, they were able to follow the Lord wherever He goes. There's nothing to sidetrack them, no one to distract them. They were God-focused and Christ-centered. So, so that's one description. And then they're also, they also are described as surrendered. Uh, second half of verse 4, it says, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits and the Lamb. When I read this, I, I thought, isn't, isn't that convicting? Think about, think about this. Their dedication to Christ was total. It was 100% surrender. It was totally dedicated to Him. And the convicting thought is this. They had a complete, listen, listen, this is so good. They had a complete commitment to the Lord in a time of desperate tribulation. And yet so many of us have a weak commitment to the Lord in a time of peace and prosperity. Wow. They are surrendered. And they're also described as they are symbolic. Uh, the, now, when I say symbolic, I mean they are literal people, but they symbolically, symbolically represent the first fruit of the harvest that is to come. Look how he described in the last part of verse 4. He says, they are purchased from among men and offered as, what's that next word? Offered as what? First fruits to God and the Lamb. Now, you need to understand a little bit of Jewish heritage here. The Feast of First Fruits was one of the seven feasts on the Jewish calendars. Write that down in that little note sheet there, that section. The Feast of First Fruits was one of the, 
one of the seven feasts in the Jewish calendars. Here's what would happen. The farmer would go out into his field uh, when the grain was ripe, and he would, he would cut some of the, the ripe grain. He cut or pick some of the first sheaves of the grain, and he would take it to the priest, and the priest would wave it before the Lord. It was called a wave offering. So he'd, he'd go out to his field before he harvested anything. He'd go out to his field that was ripe for harvest, and he would take some of the sheaves of grain, cut it off, take it to the priest, give it to the priest, and the priest would wave it before the Lord at the temple. And it was called this wave offering. It was their way of, of dedicating the entire harvest to God. And it was a, a way of reminding themselves that the whole harvest belonged to him, that the whole harvest came from his hand. These 144,000 Jews who have been saved during the tribulation are symbolic of the millions more who will be saved during that time. In fact, go back to chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches uh, in their hands. So, these 144,000 are simply the first fruits of the millions who will be saved during that time of tribulation. And then they are spotless. Look in verse 5. These 144,000 are described as spotless. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Why do you think that was important to say that no lies were found in their mouths? Think in terms of chapter 13. No lies were found in their mouths. What did we read about in chapter 13? What? Deception, the mark of the beast. You see... What we're being told is they're going to be living in a time where, where everything is a lie. They're living in a time where everything, the reign of the Antichrist is based on a lie. His attack on the Bible is based on a lie. His attack on God's people is based on a lie. Uh, they're, li- they're living in a time of lies, but they will speak God's truth. And finally, they will also be spotless in their character. Look what it, it says Uh, No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. No one will be able to point a finger at them. No one will be able to stand and accuse them. Their lives will be above and beyond reproach. No hidden agenda, no skeletons in their closet. These men were genuine, thorough followers of the Lord. So this is the 144,000 that are worshiping the Lamb. Then we come to another voice had first the voice of the 144,000. Now we're talking about the voices of angels. Do you believe in angels? Do you believe that they're real? They absolutely are. Old John must have rubbed his eyes a time or two when he got this vision. Because during these visions he was, that he was given on Patmos, in chapter 14 he tells us about these angels that he saw in this vision. First angel announces the gospel. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. The third angel announces uh, the the two options that people have who live on earth. And we're going to look at that real quickly. The 
the first angel, the, 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 he says that God's going to send his angels, and the first angel will preach an eternal gospel. Look how he describes it. Verse 16, here, here's another voice that we hear. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the, what kind of gospel is it referred to there? He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. To every tribe, or every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. The eternal gospel. I love that phrase, the eternal gospel. It signifies to me uh, that God's word is timeless. That God's word is, is uh, universal. That God's word is global in its appeal. And it's proclaimed by this angel. And it's very unusual because most of the time... In Scripture, angels do not proclaim the gospel. That's the responsibility of men and women. Uh, God gave that responsibility to us. Nowhere else in Scripture uh, prior to Revelation do you see angels proclaiming the gospel. Now, the angels announced the birth of Jesus, but as far as proclaiming the gospel, you don't see that in Scripture. So what we're about to read is very, very unusual in Scripture. So let's read and see what the angels say. Verse 7, He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now this is not the gospel as we know it. Right in that column there, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. And then turn there real quickly. First Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So here is a, if you ever mark your Bible, I would, I would underline or circle or put a box around it or highlight it. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, because it is a summary of what the gospel is. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And here's the gospel, verse 3. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And that He appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So this is the gospel, and you know about the gospel, but the angels are announcing, we might even call it a, a different type of gospel, because look at how it's described uh, in verse, uh, I've lost my, verse 6, 7, thank you. He said in a loud voice, and here's the, the announcement. Here's the gospel they are proclaiming. Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the, and the springs of water. It's not the gospel message as we know it, but it is an announcement 
of calling men back to honor God, calling men back to fear God and to honor God alone. Now, I want you to look in verse 8, because in verse 8, not only do do these angels announce the gospel, but they make a prophetic announcement, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, I'm not going to stay here a long time because we're going to come back to this idea of Babylon falling, but Babylon is God's name for the world system of the beast, the economic and the political world he will rule. I want you to just take note tonight that for the child of God, the prophetic message of verse 8 is good news. Verse 8 is God's announcement, if you will, that the end is coming, and from God's perspective, it is already here. Look, Look at how it's written in verse 8. The word is not, it will fall. The word is not, one day it shall fall. The word is, fallen. Is that, listen church, talk to me, is this past tense, present tense, or future tense? Fallen. What is that? Past tense. But, but we're not there yet. And as far as the time span, if you will, we're in the middle of the tribulation, and yet in the middle of the tribulation, God prophetically announces that the Antichrist and his empire is doomed from God's perspective. God is saying, I want you to understand something, church, because it's going to be hard for you to go through. God is saying, listen, from my perspective, I want you to see it's already done. And so he announces, there's this prophetic announcement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. This is God's way of saying, it will be over soon. This is God's way of saying, the end is in sight for the devil and his demons. Fallen. You may not be able to see it, but God can see it. From your perspective, you may be in the middle of it, but from God's perspective, He already sees the devil's doom. Amen? That's good right there. That is good. Now, there's a lot more that we'll say about Babylon coming up in chapters 17 and 18, so we're not going to spend any more time there tonight, but I want you to notice the warning for every person in verses 9 through 13. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, here's another voice again, said in a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and of the Lamb, And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. I want you to notice that word torment. It's used more than once. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Third angel has a warning that every person who who ever takes a breath needs to hear. And the warning is simply this. The Bible warns that if you take the brand or the marking of the beast and you follow the Antichrist, if if you worship him during the tribulation period, 
The Bible is absolutely crystal clear. You will be cast into hell forever. And the Bible says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Now, what he describes, it's so awful, it's, it's, it's so fearful and depressing. In some ways, I'd rather skip over it. But God doesn't skip over it, so I guess neither should we. And so let's continue reading and see what else he says. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Now, here seems to, this seems to be a contrast. It seems to me that John intended his readers to see the contrast between Revelation 14.11 and chapter 13. You see, no rest for the wicked. There will be no rest for the wicked in hell, but there will be eternal rest for God's saints. Well, I believe what John is saying is this. It's better to reign with Christ forever than with the Antichrist for a few short years. During the period of the Antichrist, it will be appealing to follow Him. During the period of the Antichrist, it will seem logical to follow Him. During the period of the Antichrist, it will seem to your advantage so that you can eat, so that you can have a job. It will appear to your advantage to have His mark and bow down and worship Him. What you, if you were to do that, what you're doing is this. You were trading a few short years of, of a comfortable life for an eternity in hell. An eternity of torment. You're trading a few short years of comfort for an eternity of torment that never ends. You're exchanging what God wants you to have for what Satan wants to do. Look, just read it again, and then we'll close. Uh, he, it's better to endure persecution patiently now than to escape that persecution and suffer through eternity. That's, that's what he's saying. Look, look, look how he says it. He says in verse uh, 11, And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And I like verse 12. It's, I think it's a key verse. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It won't be easy to obey God's commandments in that time. It won't be easy to remain faithful to Jesus in that time. It will be far more appealing to give in and go along and take the mark so that you can have what you need. And, and John says, this calls for patient endurance. Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven who said, write, in other words, write this down, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, they may die in the time of tribulation, but they're dying in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. It's better to reign with Christ forever than to follow the Antichrist for a few short years. It is better to endure persecution patiently now than to endure torment for eternity. And so, as we look at this scripture, God is saying to you and to me, 
I want you to be able to be with me. I want you to be in heaven with me. I want you to be in my presence. I want you to be in your eternal home. And, and when, when we get to that time that there's this great tribulation, don't give in to the pressure to go to what's easy. Don't give in to the pressure to, to go with what is comfortable. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says, I think it was in verse 11, that those who were faithful to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I, our goal ought to be to be faithful to Jesus to the very end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, may you help us do that. May you help us to be faithful to Jesus to the very end. And in times when we have sorrows and heartache and anxiety, Remind us, Lord, there's a day coming when we can sing a new song. It's coming today when our sorrows will be turned to a song. We praise you, we honor you, we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen.